This is a series of messages given by Gordon Walker using the book of Ephesians as a basis. Gordon has a Bible teaching ministry in Nashville, Tennessee. He is a seminary graduate, an ordained clergyman, and spends a great part of his time conducting Bible seminars across the nation. This is the first of ten sessions of approximately 45 minutes each, which are contained within five cassettes. There is a six-cassette consisting of questions and answers. Now, Gordon Walker. Okay, I guess we're ready. <laughs> it's good to see you. And uh, some of you I have had the privilege of meeting before. And uh, for a number of you, this is my first opportunity. We're studying out of the book of Ephesians, and we're talking about Jesus as Lord. And, of course, when you look at the, at the book of Ephesians, you see... Uh, Christ shown to us in the heavenlies. We see him in a way that uh, we don't see him in some of the other epistles. And I trust that before we finish our study, uh, we'll see we'll see Christ in in fresh new ways. Jack tells me that there is a trap door here that it, at uh, 40 minutes automatically opens. And uh, so I'll have to watch the clock, but uh, we'll try to keep an eye on things here. <clears throat> One of the things I love to study uh, with regard to the uh, book of Ephesians is the subject of our riches in Christ, because Paul was, was caught up with the idea of the great wealth that he possessed in Christ. Now, he did not have a lot of material wealth. In fact, there were times when Paul was uh, hungry. There were times when he did not have a place to sleep. And there, there were times that he slept overnight in prison on several occasions. Uh, it's been jokingly said that when Paul got to town, he didn't check out the Holiday Inn. He checked out the local jail. And that's probably true because he often wound up there uh, for preaching Christ. But he was a man who recognized his riches in Christ. He saw his riches. Uh, he could write from a prison as though he were living in a palace. And you know, when you get to that level of spiritual life and you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ really is Lord and that your life is in his under his control and that everything that happens to you is from his good hand, then you know nothing bad can ever really happen to you. You get to a place where you really believe, Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. When you see that and you believe it and you live in light of it, nothing can shake you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't think that we get to that place overnight. I believe this is work that the Lord has to do in us. And Many times we get there only after he's taken us through many heartbreaking experiences and many difficulties in life and then brings us to see that he loves us and that he loved us through all the trouble. But it took the trouble for us to see that he loved us. And then finally he brings us to that place where we say, Yes, Lord, all things do work together for good to those who love you. And I believe it. Well, let's get right into the heavenlies, the spiritual heavenlies beginning in verse 1 of 
of Ephesians 1. <clears throat> Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I think 13 of the New Testament epistles begin with the word Paul. It's interesting that he always started out that way, and it was not uncommon in his day for a person to write a letter and to begin that letter with, a, with his own name. In fact, I think it makes more sense than the way we write letters. I got a three-page letter in the mail the other day, and the first thing I did was turn to the back page. You know, before I even start writing, I want to know who's written me. And it wasn't on the envelope, and so I, I wanted to find out who this was. So it makes a lot more sense to start out with your name uh, than, than to end with your name. At least they know who's writing, and uh, they can begin to identify with what's being written right away. The word Paul is interesting in itself. His Hebrew name was not Paul, it was Saul. When he was born into a Hebrew family there in the city of Tarsus, in what we now would call uh, Asia Minor or Turkey, uh, he was born Saul, not Paul. Now some, some uh, writers and commentators uh, on the life of Paul uh, feel that probably Paul was a... Uh, a part of his name. It could have been sort of the Gentile adaptation of his name. But the word Paul means little one. In the Greek, it's paulos. It means the little one. And why he took that name, we don't know, but if you study the book of Acts, you'll find that he did, it, he did take it. He did adopt that name uh, on the island of Cyprus on his first missionary journey. And he adopted the name and from that time on called himself Paul. I think part of it speaks of his view of himself. He viewed himself not as the King Saul after whom he had been named, not as the Great One, but as the Little One, as one who was humble in the sight of God. Paul had been brought low. At one time, he had been the mighty Pharisee. He had been the, the zealous leader of all of his comrades there in Jerusalem. In fact, according to his own word in the book of Galatians, Saul had outstripped all the rest of his fellow countrymen. He was known as the rising young star among the Jewish uh, zealots and uh, students of Scripture and among the young Pharisees. Very devout, very religious, but also very self-righteous. He felt that he could handle everything himself. And it took a confrontation with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus to bring this man into a, a humble state. I really think the confrontation began the day that Stephen preached that marvelous sermon in the synagogue and then was later taken out and stoned to death. And it says that Saul held his robes. And the indication there is that 
the one who brought the charges against the person being stoned had the honor of holding his robe, the robes of the rest of the people who did the stoning. And so they, all these men took off their outer garments, their cloaks, and so forth, so they could throw the stones, these large stones that would have finally uh, crushed the life from Stephen. And Saul held their coats, their cloaks. As he watched this man Stephen die, first he had heard him preach. And he preached, it's, the Bible says his face was like the face of an angel. He preached with the power of God. And as he preached, of course, the gospel began to get home, get to the hearts of the men who listened, and he brought great conviction to them. They, they felt guilty before God, but they hated this man for bringing this message. And they took him out and stoned him because he was attacking their, religious, their little uh, religious ideas, you see. People don't want their religion upset. They hold on to religion dearly. They may not know the Lord, but they want religion because this is their little security blanket. And it's also, it's also becomes an area of life that they can exercise dominion over others in. So religion has always been used to hold people down in, in ignorance and fear and superstition. And so this was true with, with Paul and his, uh, his compatriots. They didn't like the fact that Stephen was attacking their religion and saying, what you need is a relationship with God. This religious stuff is phony. But he couldn't help but listen. He saw the, th this man's face like it was the face of an angel. And then as he died, as these stones came crushing onto his body and the blood began to gush from his face and from, uh, from his body, th they saw him look up to heaven and he apparently the Lord just opened up the heavens so that he could see Jesus not seated but standing Jesus was standing the Lord Jesus Christ the scripture says he he after he ascended he was seated at the right hand of the father but when Stephen saw him he was not seated he was standing he was waiting for Stephen to come home and he was getting ready to greet Stephen and I'm sure that uh, that was a glorious sight for Stephen in his dying moments to look up and see the Lord Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And then he said, Father, don't hold these people accountable for what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. He died just like the Lord Jesus himself died, praying that the men who killed him would not be held accountable for their deed, that the Lord would not charge it to their account. What a tremendous way to die. Saul could never get away from it. And it was quite some time later when he was arrested by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And this, this proud Pharisee was humbled and finally came to the place where he had to call out to God in humility. And of course, we know the story of the transformation that took place in his life. And he became the greatest preacher of the gospel of Christ that's ever lived. The man who was proud became humble, and I think that's why he adopted this name Paulus, the little one. You know, Jesus said, he that would be least in the kingdom of God would be greater than John the Baptist, and he had said that there was no man greater born of women than John the Baptist. But uh, just to be 
great, uh, a, a human, human greatness uh, is not enough. John the Baptist had human greatness, and he also had spiritual greatness. But the, the wonderful truth was that Jesus said, to be great in the kingdom, you have to be small, you have to be little, you have to, the way up is down in the kingdom. He that is servant of all shall be great in the kingdom, Jesus said. And I think that Paul probably is the greatest Christian who ever lived because he called himself less than the least of all saints. And Jesus said, the greatest among you will be least of all. So my own personal viewpoint, and you don't have to accept this, is that he was referring to this man who would come after him, this man Saul, who became Paul, the little one. And he, he called himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The word apostle means one who is set on a mission. You don't volunteer to be an apostle. You get called. You get drafted. And Paul had been drafted by God. God had chosen him to be an apostle. Now, I happen to believe that the ministry of apostleship is just as important today as it was in the first century. I do believe that there were certain apostles who had a place in the kingdom that no one else will ever have. The twelve apostles had a certain peculiar place in the kingdom. The Bible says their names will be written on foundation stones in the New Jerusalem, and they are very important to the founding of the church. And, of course, uh, Paul is the, the greatest apostle uh, outside of the twelve apostles, and in many ways the greatest apostle who ever lived. But there were many apostles. In fact, in the second century, there were so many apostles that the early churches had to pass regulations to, on the apostles to keep them from uh, overrunning the churches. They were just everywhere. They were men who said, we have been called of God to go out and propagate the gospel. Their purpose was to plant churches and to build churches, to plant them and to build them. And I believe that that ministry is still needed today. There is the necessity of laying foundations in the church of Jesus Christ today, just like there was in the first century. We lay the same foundation. For many years, I used to think of the church as a great tall skyscraper, a great uh, cathedral-like building that was being built toward heaven. And it was uh, 20 centuries tall. And then the Lord showed me that's really not a good way to look at it. It's more like a long barracks building that's 20 centuries long. And the foundation needs to be laid in the 20th century like it had to be laid in the first century. God is still building his church today. And I think that's not a bad analogy to, call, to think of the church as a barracks building because one of the words that we get from the, the New Testament that we're all familiar with is the word cemetery. And the cemetery comes from the Greek word koimeterion, which meant the barracks where the soldiers sleep. And for the Christian, the cemetery is simply the barracks where the soldiers' bodies are asleep waiting for the resurrection, you see. So the church is this great long two, barracks building, 2,000 years long. It's been built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the truths of the apostles, preaching and teaching, 
and it's just as necessary today to lay apostolic foundations as it was in the first century. We have to know apostolic truth. We have to understand it. Those of you who have heard me speak before know that I believe the book of Romans is the purest expression of apostolic doctrine, but the book of Ephesians is some of the highest expression of apostolic doctrine. And if we are to be founded on the truth, we must understand the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians. They are very essential to spiritual growth. These are foundational truths. Really, I think Romans is more foundational truth and, and uh, Ephesians is root truth. <laughs> I'm using the, the analogy of a building here. We have to have the foundation to build on. We have to have the walls and we have to have the roof. And we're in the heavenlies when we're in the book of Ephesians. Very important truth. And the Christian's life, if it's going to be lived on a different plane than everybody else around you lives on, if you're going to live on a plane beyond the worldly plane, you must understand the book of Ephesians. You must get up into the heavenlies and live there. We're in the heavenlies, it's just that we don't know how to live there. And the Lord wants us to learn how to live in the heavenlies. That's the privilege that every believer has. Well, Paul was an apostle called by the will of God. He was an apostle of Christ Jesus. And this is a calling from God. It's not something that we voluntarily take on. Again, as I say, I believe there are men today who are apostles. Some are prophets, some are evangelists, and some are pastors and teachers. And they're all given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ, for the, the strengthening of the believers so that they might do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is to be done by all believers, not just by professional clergymen. But the, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher, and we'll see more about this in Ephesians 4, are given to the church for the building up of the body of Christ so that they might carry out the work of the ministry. Now he says that he is addressing himself to the saints who are at Ephesus. We often think of the saints as being especially religious people. These are the super spiritual giants. And the rest of us are sort of down on some lower plane. Now, let me tell you something. Saints are all people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a saint by calling. You get called into the family of God. You respond to that calling. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. And immediately God calls you a saint. The word saint comes from the word, uh, the same word that sanctify comes from. It also is... is comes from the same word that we get our word holy from. Its root meaning is to separate, to set apart to the will of God and to the purposes of God. When a person is sanctified, he becomes God's property. Have you ever seen these uh, t-shirts that say property of such and such athletic department? I have one that says property of the Ohio State University athletic department. Well, that's a sanctified t-shirt. It may be misappropriated, but it's sanctified uh, because it's the property of that, uh, of that athletic department. Now, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, he stamps you, property of God. You're sanctified. You're set apart to God. You become his property, and he's going to work in your life in a special way that he does not work in a person 
in, in, the, in the individual's life who is not sanctified and set apart to God. By the way, it's possible to be sanctified and not be saved. All saved people are sanctified, but not all sanctified people are saved. For instance, the children of Israel were spoken of as sanctified people, but they were not all saved people. They had not all entered into a personal relationship with Jesus or with their Messiah or with their Savior. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. doesn't mean he's automatically saved, that he automatically has eternal life. It means that because his wife has become a believer, now he has been set apart for the Holy Spirit to work in his life. So he's set apart to God. The children are set apart to God for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. You get one believer in a family, and the whole family gets sanctified. God's going to start working in that family in a way that he could not work before. And then ultimately, one by one, he brings them into the family, into the family of God. Well, all believers are saints. And, of course, he especially addresses himself to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Not all saints are faithful. I think most of us desire to be faithful, and one of the sad things is when we fail to be faithful. This brings sadness to our lives, and it brings sadness to others. He then addresses himself in a way that's familiar. If you've studied the epistles of Paul, uh, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just point out two things about this. First of all, you can't have peace until you've understood grace. Grace is foundational to everything. If I understand the grace of God, then I have a basis for having the peace of God. Now, uh, this is important, very important. What is grace? Let me give you a definition for grace. Uh, most of you have already heard this. Uh, if you've listened to many tapes, and if you've been around Jack Archer, you've heard tapes. Uh, so uh, you, you, you've heard the definition of grace, but I'll give it to you anyhow. Grace is that unlimited, unconditional, creative love freely given to one who does not deserve it. And did you get the latter part of the definition? It is unlimited, it's unconditional, and that's a little bit uh, maybe not altogether true because the one condition on grace uh, for my receiving grace is faith. God extends grace to all men, but it's only by faith that I enter into his grace. Paul speaks of this grace in which we stand. We, have to, we stand in the sphere of grace just like we live in the atmosphere of of air, or a fish lives in the sphere of water. So we stand in grace, but how do we get access into that grace? According to Romans 5, it's by faith. By faith we gain access into the grace of God. So that is the one condition, but remember, grace is the one thing you can do without doing anything. You don't do anything when you believe. God is the one who's done it and is doing it. He has already done the work at the cross, and saving faith is simply looking at what God has done for you. 
not anything you do for God. So when you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you're not really doing anything. It's rather foolish not to believe it once you've been exposed to the truth. So I guess the definition can still hold. Grace is that unlimited, unconditional, creative love of God, freely given to one who does not deserve it. Now keep that in mind. You first of all need to see you don't deserve it. A lot of people think, well, God ought to love me. He's God, and I need to be loved. But you know, uh, the fact is, we're sinners. <laughs> we just are, that's all. Whether we know it or not, we've broken every law God's got. There's not a law in the book that we haven't broken in one way or another. And once you have broken God's law, if it's nothing more uh, than the breaking of the two greatest commandments, what did Jesus, how did Jesus summarize the, 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 the great commandments? Number one, thou shalt love who? The Lord thy God. And how much? With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. Now, who in the world's ever done that 100% of the time? I mean, even if you do it once in a while, you're doing something. But to say you've done it all the time, from your earliest childhood till this very day, none of us have done that. And the second commandment is like unto it. What is that? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, how many of us have loved ourselves? Thank the Lord, some of us don't love our neighbors as we love ourselves. It'd be terrible if we did. You know, a lot of us don't love ourselves at all. We hate ourselves. We have this terrible feeling about us that we feel like we're no good and we have a lot of bad attitudes toward ourselves. And many people don't ever really articulate this. They never say it out loud even to themselves, but they just can't stand themselves. They like to look better than they do. You know, it's funny. Uh, I, I once heard a, a man speaking, and he was telling the story of a gal who was the beauty queen on her campus. And she had this big hang-up, this big complex, because she and she didn't love herself, and she... Uh, when she began to counsel with this man, the, the problem came out that she didn't like the way her nose was, you know, and she felt very self-conscious about it. Here she was, the envy of every gal on campus, practically, the beauty queen, and she doesn't love herself because she doesn't like the way her nose looks. Isn't that ridiculous? We, we laugh about it, but it was a real hang-up with her. It was really a hang-up. And we're that way. We just don't love ourselves. So Jesus said the second commandment's just about as tough as the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And first of all, we can't love our neighbor that way because we don't love ourselves. And then, then if we do get around to seeing ourselves the way God sees us and begin to have a healthy respect for ourselves, we've still got problems with our neighbors. Who can love some of the neighbors they have? I mean, there's some of the neighbors we have that are just not worthy of being loved. So take those, those three commandments, to love God, love yourself, and love your neighbor, and how many of us have kept them? How many of us? 
So we break the law of God to start right off with. At every point, we are unrighteous and unholy in the sight of God. And then just go down the line, and you can pick out any of the commandments, and somewhere down the line you'll find that you've broken that commandment. Let me tell you something. We all need grace, whether we recognize it or not. Grace is for those who don't deserve it. In other other words, to qualify for grace, you can't qualify. If you do qualify, you don't. Anything you do to make yourself qualify for grace means that grace is no longer grace. And uh, we have to come to understand this. Grace cannot be grace if I do something to qualify for it. Well, Paul says that the first thing that's necessary is that we understand grace. Grace to you and peace, he says. And once you see grace and you get to understand it and you realize how much God loves you and how he accepts you as you are and he loves you as you are, he has forgiven you because of what he did at the cross and by the, the, the sacrifice of his own dear son, he's made it possible for you to be a forgiven person. And he's extended that love unconditionally and in an unlimited way to you and all you do is just take it by faith and you realize you're not worthy of it. In fact, I'll tell you, uh, the more you see yourself in the true light of God, the more you realize you're unworthy of the grace of God. The more, the more mature Christians see how unworthy they really are. But when you do this, then you have a basis for peace. Once you've gotten grounded in grace, then you have a basis to have peace. Peace is that subjective experience that comes from the objective truth that we have been received in grace, that God has accepted us by his grace, and we have received his grace for ourselves. And we're able to say, Lord, I'm no longer at war with you. I'm, my, my account is settled, and I am at peace with you. That's a good feeling, to be at peace with God and then to have the peace of God that passes all understanding. The Bible says in Philippians 4 that his peace passes all understanding. We were sharing a couple of us a little while ago about some things about this matter of peace, and I was sharing an experience I had a number of years ago. when My oldest daughter contracted bulbar polio. We were living in Fort Worth at the time and uh, almost died. She was placed in an iron lung. Twice she stopped breathing. And I had been at war with God over the whole matter. I would said, God, I don't understand this. Why have you let this happen to me? Kind of thing. And you know, the thing that made it tough was that uh, as a young minister, I had conducted the funeral of three or four children. And I remember at that time, every time it would happen, just tear me up inside and I'd say, now God, what if that were my child? How could I face that? And let me tell you something. I learned a lesson that's been a hard way. I've learned it a lot. Most of my lessons I learned the hard way. But uh, I've learned that you don't project into the future. You don't say, well, what would I do if such and such happened? First of all, about 90% of the things we worry about never happen anyhow. And if we'd quit worrying about the 90%, we could handle the other 10 
If we, if, you know, God will give you the grace to face the situation when it comes. But we worry about it before it gets here. And we build it all up in our minds and all out of proportion. And I used to worry about it and I'd think, what would happen to me if it were my child that, that had died? And it, and it was a tremendous struggle in my mind about it. And Satan used it against me. Brought a lot of unhappiness to me over it. A lot of worry and a lot of anxiety. And then when my child was at the point of death, I had fought with God all day long. In fact, I'd been fighting with God ever since we put her in the hospital. I was resenting God. I was angry with God. But that day, I knew she was dying. In fact, I spoke to one of the nurses, and I said to her, she came in, I, I, I said, how would I know if my child were dying? And the nurse said, well, she's not even on the critical list. And I thought when she left, she may not be on your critical list, but this child's not going to live through the night. I just knew that she wasn't going to make it. She was getting weaker by the minute. And the battle was raging inside of me. And finally, when the doctor got there about 11.30 that night, he saw that she was at the point of death and gave orders that they give her adrenaline and so forth to get her heart beating and this kind of thing. And I went into a room next door to hers, a vacant hospital room. I just got on my knees. I said, Lord, I will not fight you anymore. I, I have fought with you long enough about this. And if you want my child, you can have her. And I just gave her up to the Lord, and I fully expected to walk back into that room and find that she had died. And I, I had no faith. My faith was at sub-zero. I would have had to go a long way just to get up to zero. And uh, I, I was just in this unbelieving frame of mind. I couldn't trust God in that situation. But you know, the moment on my knees when I, when I really meant business with God and I said, Lord, she's yours. I won't fight you. If you want her, you take her. I felt the peace of God come over my soul in such a real way that I felt like I could have reached out and touched him. I tell you, that's a thrilling experience, to be able to just sort of reach out and touch God. And I, you know, he touched me, really. I love that song, He Touched Me. And oh, the joy that fills my soul. When the Lord touches you, you know you've been touched. What a, what a thrill it is to have the peace of God just roll over you. Now, I tell you, there were, that was what I needed to get me through that night, but I had to have the Lord keep on restoring that peace day by day because we went for days and we, every day was a touch and go. We didn't know whether she would live or not. But Paul spoke of a peace that comes from grace. And once you understand the grace of God and see that he loves you unconditionally, that, he, he, that, that his love is for those who don't deserve it, and you're one of those that doesn't deserve it, and you receive that, that grace by faith, then I tell you, you're ready for the peace of God. And he can begin then to give you a peace that passes understanding. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Isn't that a wonderful truth? He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
Now that's the real theme of what I want to talk about. Our blessings that are in the heavenlies in Christ. He has not left out any of them. All of our blessings, all, all of them, are in Christ. And we have in him everything that God can give us. Not just a few of the things. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I've never come to see that. I haven't come to realize it yet. How can you say that, that he's blessed me with every spiritual blessing? I feel like I'm in a desert and I don't enjoy the Lord and I don't enjoy my spiritual blessings or anything. Well, maybe before these, uh, this series is over, we, you'll see uh, that you have a reason to rejoice that he has really blessed you. And it's already taken place if you're in Christ Jesus. The sphere of the blessing is in Christ. And you see, the Christian life, as Watchman Nee has put it, is the process of becoming what we already are in Christ. We already are righteous. We already are forgiven. We already are children of God. It's just the process of becoming what we already are. It's discovering what I already possess. I read the story of a, of, of a man who had come from England, or apparently his, his uh, relatives all were from England, and he had drifted all over the West trying to, to find riches. And this was many years ago. He finally wound up in Montana working on a ranch and living just uh, from hand to mouth, just about to starve to death. And then finally, uh, uh, some lawyer found, found the man, located him, and told him that years before, a relative of his in England had died and had no heirs, and all of his wealth was to be passed on to the nearest of kin, the nearest relative. And this man was the nearest relative. And for years he'd been living in poverty and they were looking all over the world to find this man so that he could have his inheritance. And as soon as he got word, he went straight down to the railway station. He went down and bought a suit of clothes on credit on the basis that he was wealthy. He bought a railroad ticket and headed back for New York to take a, sh uh, a, a ship across the ocean to England. And when the uh, newspaper reporters interviewed him, asked him where he was going, what he was going to do, he says, I am going to claim my wealth. Now, that's what we do in Christ. And I tell you, I hope that before we finish, you'll be claiming some of the wealth that's yours in Christ. It's yours. God has given it to you. It's not something he's going to give to you. You already possess it. But a lot of us are living in spiritual poverty. We don't know who we are and what we possess in him. We're not living in the heavenlies. We're living in the earthlies, and we're bound by all the things, earthly desires and motivations and drives and so forth, and the bondages of the world. And God wants to lift you far above that. And he's blessed, with e blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, don't get upset about the fact that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. Some people get all uptight about predestination and election and all this kind of thing. 
I think we all just enjoy it. Don't try to understand it. <laughs> None of us will ever understand all that the Bible says. And it's great to know that God had you in mind before he ever made this world. And notice what he chose you for, that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, predestination is always for some special place of blessing. It teaches me that when I have believed in Christ as my Savior, I may know on the authority of God that it is settled forever that someday I am to become exactly like my Savior. That's what God is after. That's the whole goal of predestination, to conform us to the image of Christ, to make me exactly like my Savior. That's the good that God is after. And he's not going to quit till he gets me to looking just like Jesus. Well, I think it's about time. we got about two more minutes, haven't we? Okay. We're just getting warmed up. I haven't gotten to the riches yet. just want to tell you they're there. And he says that I want you to hang on to that statement in verse 4 that we can be holy and blameless before him. Now, the next verse. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through, Christ, through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Notice certain things here. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That adoption simply means to bring us into adult sonship. God wants you to enjoy your childhood, your sonship, your, your, uh, your relationship to him as a child. Uh, little babies don't know what it is to be in a family. All they need is to stay full and dry, you know. They may be in a very wealthy family, but they don't know that. They can't enjoy it. It's only as they enter into adulthood that they can begin to enjoy the relationship with the parent. And so he wants us to enjoy our relationship with him as a child of God. And notice in verse 5 that his will is filled with kind intentions. The Lord had to show me that his will was full of good intentions. I used to have the idea that the will of God was the last thing you want to submit to. You know, when all else fails, you finally resign yourself to the will of God. But God's will is good. It's not evil. It's full of kind intentions. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. His grace is glorious and wonderful, and it has been freely, marvelously lavished upon us in the Beloved. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next session. Well, we'll just take a few minutes break here. Living on a farm there, and it was my first year to try to plant a garden. And uh, I wasn't familiar with the seasons in north central Ohio, and we got out there and got ahead of the season. And I'd plowed the ground and, and gotten everything ready, and and planted the seed too soon. And up there, they have late seasons. You'll get cold, wet spells that will come uh, late in the year, up almost to the end of May. And I'd gotten the seed in the ground. I thought, boy, I'm going to be ahead of everybody else. Nobody had planted their garden yet. Well, no 
sooner. And the day we planted was a beautiful, warm, sunshiny day. Within a day or so after I planted all this seed, heavy rain started falling. It turned off almost freezing cold. And it, rains washed out the seed that I'd planted, and then finally the cold weather was so cold that the seed wouldn't germinate. And finally when it did come up, uh, the weeds were far ahead of the garden. And I didn't know how in the world I was going to salvage it. Being a southerner, I had planted a row of okra. And I wanted, if anything, I wanted to salvage my okra. And uh, so finally when it dried out enough for me to get out in my weed patch, I got down on my hands and knees to try to find that okra. And I, I was going down the row, and I, I, I knew enough about okra to know that it was, what was okra and what was not uh, okra. And so everything that wasn't okra I assumed was weeds. And uh, as I began to work down that row, I got about halfway down the row, and it struck me how many different varieties of weeds I had run across. I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe there was so many different. I just thought of weeds as weeds. You, you know, there must be hundreds of varieties of weeds. And so about halfway down the row, I was on my hands and knees, and I thought, Lord, isn't this something? You love weeds. You love weeds enough to grow all kinds of weeds. And so I just looked up into the heavens and said, Praise the Lord, we serve a lavish God. He's lavish with weeds. <laughs> you know? And I, boy, this is not the kind of lavishness I was caring for at the moment. But it became a point of worship for me. I thought, if God cares that much about weeds, then how much does he care for me? Jesus said, if he cares for the sparrows of the air, and knows when every sparrow falls. And if he cares uh, for the lilies of the field, then certainly he must care for us. He must care for us. He cares for us a lot more than we ever give him credit for. God is a lavish God, and he loves to bestow his grace on us and to pour it out on us. Our problem is we're our eyes are closed to it. We're... We, with eyes we see, but we really don't see. Our ears don't really hear. And we really don't know how much God loves us. And we think, God doesn't love me. And all the while, he's trying to tell us how much he loves us. Now, it says that in him we have redemption through his blood. The word redemption means to purchase by the payment of a price. And it was quite well understood in Paul's day because there were, uh, there were many slaves in his, the day when this was originally written. And the word he used here was to buy out of the marketplace to pr pay the purchase price. Uh, and this especially was used for slaves uh, where maybe a wealthy uh, philanthropist would go down to the slave market and he would see this fine young man who may have had a good education, a good background, and uh, yet had lived in a, in a territory that had rebelled against Rome, and so the Roman armies had gone in and conquered them and made slaves out of everybody. So this wealthy man would say, well, I, I don't want to see this young man wasted. I'll buy him out of slavery. I'll pay his redemption price. And there was a word that could be used. There were three different words that we translate 
redemption. And they're all pretty much the same, except they have shades of difference in, in, in meaning. And one of them meant to buy out of the marketplace, never to be put up for sale again. Well, uh, in essence, this is what this word means here. In him we have redemption through his blood. Christ has shed his blood. He's uh, paid the price for our redemption, and we've been bought out of the slave market of sin, and God will never put us up for sale again. We aren't, it, it's not negotiable. God does not intend to put us back out there uh, for sale again. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. Now notice what he says. We, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now what does that mean? It's the forgiveness of our trespasses. His blood has provided the forgiveness of our trespasses. The reason we were in bondage is that we had trespassed against God. We're in bondage to our own sin, to our own willful, self-willed, stubborn, rebellious deeds. That's where we are. And that's where most of the world lives. They live in bondage to their own rebellion and their own stubbornness and self-will. So, he's saying we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. The, the, the very deeds that put us into bondage, the reason we needed to be bought out of bondage is because of our trespasses and by the shedding of his blood, the redemption price was paid and now we have the forgiveness of all our sins that sets us free from this bondage. I am so glad that he used the word trespasses here. And uh, again, I think some of you may, I may have shared this before, but let me share it again just for those who didn't hear it. It's important to understand. For years, I thought that the blood of Jesus would cover all our sins that we kind of accidentally committed or the sins that we were sorry for d doing and maybe couldn't keep from doing. But the sins that you knew you were doing and you willfully did, I thought, man, we're in trouble on that. Surely grace doesn't cover that too. And then only a matter of two or three years ago, I was studying the Word on this, and I saw that there were certain sins that we, we just sort of can't keep from committing sometimes. For instance, how many times have you made a promise, Lord, I won't lose my patience anymore? You know, I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore. Or I'm going, you know, I'm not going to yell at my husband or my wife or whatever. You know, I, Lord, I'm not going to lose my patience. And just as soon as you get through saying it, what do you do? You blow it. You know, you're just sure you're not going to do this again. Well, we we just can't keep from doing some things, no matter how hard we try. Those are the kind of sins spoken of in Romans 3:23. Says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Greek word there is hamartia. And the hamartia sins are the kind where you miss the mark, you miss the target. It's like the, the guy who's shooting the bow and arrow, and he not only doesn't hit the bullseye, he misses the whole target. That's the way I would do. Well, who can blame a person who's not a marksman if he misses the target? Now, I have a friend in Ohio who's a real marksman, and uh, he can use a bow and arrow and hit the target every time. Now, if he missed the target, then we'd have to say, well, this guy's really off, you know, and we'd razz him and make fun of him. But if I missed the target, you may make a little fun of him, but you wouldn't blame me too much. 
Then if you took my daughter, who can't pull the bow because of the polio she had, who's going to say anything about that? Who would be critical of a person who can't even draw the bow? And there are just some kinds of sins that we just seemingly have no power to stay out of or to quit or to, to control. Those are the hamartia sins. And those are covered by the blood of Jesus. But then there are other words. We translate them transgression, trespass, iniquity, and lawless deeds. These are the sins that we knowingly and willingly commit. And here Paul didn't say, he didn't use the word hamartia in verse 7, that through his blood we have the forgiveness of our sins. Now, it may be translated sins in some of your Bibles. I know some Bibles use the word sin to translate it here, but that is not the word that is used in the Greek. The word used in the Greek here means a willful trespass. There are certain sins that we know when we do them that it's wrong. The boundary is clearly marked out. God has said, Thou shalt not do this, and we do it anyhow. You know, when you trespass, you see the sign It says, No Trespassing. And you go ahead and walk across anyhow, or go out and hunt in this fellow's field when he says, posted, no trespassing, no hunting. And what do you want to do? You want to hunt there, because you figure nobody else is hunting there, you see. And uh, so the law always arouses our sinful passions. And that's what the Bible says. The law is given to arouse our sinful passion, to cause us to sin more, so we realize that uh, we can't do it on our own. We have to trust God. We have to turn our, our lives over to Him. And so this drives us to Christ. It drives us to the grace of God. But the Bible makes it clear that there are just some things we know when we do them, that they're wrong. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. There's a verse here that makes this very clear. In Hebrews 10, he says in verse 17, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, there are several things about that, that verse that are exciting to me. First, he says, their sins. That's hamartia sins. Uh, the things like losing your temper and all kinds, we could list a lot of things, and just seemingly we have little control over at times. Their sins and their lawless deeds. Those are the things that we do contrary to the law of God. We know that the law says, Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and yet we do these things anyhow. This is a lawless deed. Something done against the law of God he says, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. I'm so glad that God said that. And the, the, the construction in the Greek there is, I will never, ever remember them anymore. God will not bring them up against us. He keeps no record of the believer's sin. He does not charge them to the believer's account. He charges them to Jesus' account. That's grace. What a great God we serve. It's, it's too good to be true, really. You begin to understand grace. You get so excited about it, you don't know what to do. I was reading today on the plane a little story about Queen Elizabeth. I guess this was back many, many years ago when the first Queen Elizabeth 
lived in England, uh, was traveling somewhere or something, and a woman had planned to assassinate her, to stab her. And this woman had dressed up as a, as a boy, as a page boy, and had gotten somehow in uh, to where the queen was, and she was going to hide in the queen's dressing room and kill her when she came in there. Her plan was to assassinate her when she came in uh, to uh, her dressing room. Well, of course, what she didn't think about was that the queen's attendants came in first to search the room before the queen ever walked in. And, of course, they found this, this woman dressed up like a boy or a, or a man uh, hiding in, uh, in the queen's closet there, and they brought her out with the dagger that she had planned to use the, to kill Queen Elizabeth with. And uh, when she realized her circumstances, of course, she knew she could be put to death for this immediately, she fell on her knees and began to, to beg the queen for grace. And Queen Elizabeth said, If I extend you grace, what promises will you make to me about your future performance? What will you do in return? And the woman answered, Grace that, that has requirements and has, uh, I forget the terms you use, but stipulations attached to it is not grace. And the queen immediately caught the point, and she says, You're right. I will pardon you out of my grace with no strings attached. And the result was that this woman became one of the most loyal and faithful servants of the queen. That's what grace does. And when God pardons us, he pardons us with no strings attached. He doesn't say, I'll forgive you provided you do this, this, and this, and this, this, and this. That's not the way God forgives. He gives total, complete, immediate, instantaneous, absolute forgiveness. And it covers all my sins, past, present, and future. It covers my willful and non-willful sins. Do you realize that the sacrifices prescribed in the Old Testament only covered non-willful sins? That even included the, sin, the, the sacrifices that were offered on the Day of Atonement, the highest, most holy day on the Jewish calendar. The Bible says they were for non-willful sins. And when David willfully committed his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then sent her husband out to be killed in the, in the battle, there was not any offering that he could make. There was no prescribed offering for the willful sin that he committed. And he saw it, and David saw grace more than any other man in the Old Testament. And I think the reason he did is because he needed it more than anybody else. You know? And praise God he saw it because he passed down for generations to come an understanding of the grace of God. And he saw that, that there was no offering he could make. In, in one of the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 51, he says, Sacrifice and burnt offering thou hast not desired, O God, but a broken and a contrite heart thou wilt not despise. And he came to, to the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart for his sin, and God cleansed him of his sin. But the good news 
of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that the blood of Jesus not only covers the non-willful sins, it covers the willful sins as well. Now, that's good news. That is good news, isn't it? Amen. Praise the Lord. I ought to say amen and praise the Lord. Because that gets us where we live. And I'm so glad the Lord has shown me that. There was years when I lived in bondage and I did not realize that I was forgiven of my willful sins as well as my non-willful sins. And uh, it says that he will never remember them against us anymore. In fact, God goes on to say one of the things David wrote about forgiveness was that uh, our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. And I always like to share that with people because that is an infinite distance. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. See, if you go north till you get to the North Pole, then you start going south again. When you get to the South Pole, then you go north. But when you go east, you always go east. If you go west, you always go west. And the distance between east and west is infinite. And the Bible says he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he will never, ever remember them against us anymore. That's the kind of God we serve. I'll tell you, if that isn't good news, then I don't know what good news is. And God doesn't make little green apples and whatever else the song says. That's good news. All right, back to Ephesians chapter 1. It says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, our deliberate sins, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. Paul says, how, how rich is God? How rich are the riches of his grace? Let me tell you, they are unlimited. His riches are unlimited. You can't take an inventory of the riches of God's grace. There's no way. And he has lavished them freely upon us. Well, let's go on. In verse 8, he says, In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Now remember, Paul's already mentioned once about the kind intention of the will of God. He mentioned that in verse 5. He speaks there of the kind intention of the will of God. I hope you get that point. Most of us are afraid of the will of God. We're afraid to turn everything over to the Lord. And we say, now, Lord, you can have some areas of my life, but you can't have everything. I mean, there's just some things I don't want to turn over to the Lord, you know. After all, I've got to keep a few things for myself. And besides that, the Lord, if I really surrendered my life to the Lord, you know what he'd do? He'd send me to Africa as a missionary. <laughs> you know, something... Well, uh, that's, that's what a lot of people are afraid of. Let me say this. Some of the happiest people I've ever met were missionaries in Africa. I traveled in Africa. Twice I've traveled around the continent of Africa, and I tell you, some of the happiest people I've ever met are missionaries in Africa. So if it takes that to be happy, you might as well go to Africa and be a missionary. But the point is this. If it's the will of God for you to be a missionary in Africa, you couldn't be happy if you were a millionaire in Corpus Christi. You see, 
happiness is where God puts you in, and, and you know you're in the center of His will and where you can relax in the kind intentions of the will of God. Now, when I talk about happiness, I'm not talking about some kind of blissful state where there's never any trouble because there isn't any such place like that. <laughs> there are no people on the face of God's green earth that don't have problems of one kind or another. And God is certainly not going to exempt his, his children from troubles. Because once you become a Christian, then some of your troubles just begin. Up to that time, the devil wasn't fighting you. He had you. <laughs> now he's fighting you. And so you're going to find that, the, that Satan is really going to throw a lot, of, a lot of tricks at you. And he's going to put a lot of things in your way. But happiness is knowing that you're in the will of God. And even whenever Satan comes along and hits you with one of his low blows, that the Lord has not forsaken you, that he still loves you and he still cares for you, and he's going to see you through. And sometimes it's the will of God for you to be hungry and in a time of stress and difficulty. You know, I did a study of the temptations of Jesus once, and it really did bless me to see some things I had not seen before. For instance, you remember the temptation that came to him after he had been fasting for 40 days and nights. It says, after his fast, he was hungry. Now, doesn't that seem strange to you? It sounds rather redundant to say that anybody would be hungry after going for 40 days and 40 nights. But uh, I read some about fasting, and I found I've never fasted 40 days and 40 nights. But I found in reading about it that there's been a good, a good bit written about it. And uh, a lot of people fasted who weren't Christians. The Greek, uh, the Greek philosophers many times would require their students to fast for long periods of time. One philosopher would not accept a student until he had fasted for 40 days. And 40 days seemed to have been the maximum limits that they usually placed on fasting. And according to what I've read, at the, the, after you go through the first three days of fasting and you kind of break through a barrier where you cease to be hungry, and you may have a mild hunger uh, from time to time, but usually you have no major hunger pain until the 40th day. And on the 40th day, you go through excruciating hunger pain. And that's where Jesus was. He was at a point where he was in agony. This was a physical reaction of his body, crying out for food. And at that point, Satan hit him. He always gets you when you're weak. Have you ever noticed that? He gets you at a downtime. He's not going to hit you when you're up. He's going to hit you when you're down. And he comes to Jesus when his body is crying out for satisfaction, and there's nothing wrong with eating. It's perfectly legitimate to satisfy the desire for food. And the same thing is true with sex and many other things, that we have perfectly legitimate desires. It's just that there are times when God says it's not right to satisfy that desire. And the temptation for Jesus was to satisfy a legitimate desire outside of the will of God. 
Because, you see, at that moment, it was the will of God for him to be hungry. That was the tough part about it. God willed that he be in that wilderness, alone, facing temptation from Satan, and to be hungry. And so that first temptation wasn't just to satisfy his hunger. The real subtlety of the temptation was to get him to step outside the will of God and to act on his own strength and in his own power. Because, you see, it was God's will for him to be hungry. You say, well, surely it's not God's will for me to be hungry. Doesn't God want what's best for me? Yes, he surely does. But in the process of getting what's best for us, sometimes he has to put us through a time of testing. And sometimes we have to go through the hunger period. And you see, the testing, the tempting, is to get you to act outside of the will of God, to, to legitimately act, really, to satisfy a legitimate hunger, but to do it outside of the will of God. And so we need to see that though the will of God may not always be easy, and it may mean that sometimes I'll be hungry in the will of God and I will be suffering in the will of God, just as our Lord Jesus was. But when I trust him in the midst of the hunger and the suffering, I will see ultimately that it was filled with kind intentions. And God had good things in mind for me all the time. If I'll, just, if I'll just trust him through that time of testing. So, Paul speaks again of the kind intention of his will. Let's go back. He made known to us the mystery of his will, verse 9, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. Now, that's a rather heavy verse. And you say, well, what, what does Paul mean by that verse, verse 9 and 10? He's speaking about the will of God and the mystery of his will, and it's full of kind intentions, and if this will of God was purposed in Christ, now, what, what did God have in mind? What is, the, what is the ultimate intention of God and his will for us? Why does God want to place us in Christ, and what is his ultimate goal? Well, the ultimate goal is to bring us into, a period of, into a, an administration, as it says here. The Greek word is the word for economy. We get our word economy from it, economus. And it means to bring us into a, a circumstance, ultimately, where Jesus Christ is in perfect control of everything. And I want to tell you something. That's the great goal we're mo moving toward. And I believe we're moving to toward it very rapidly. I believe we're going to see the day soon in our lifetime, in the lifetime of most in this room, if we live a normal lifespan, when Jesus Christ will come again. I don't know a whole lot about Bible prophecy. I've read some of Hal's books and I've read other books on prophecy, but the more I study about it, the more convinced I am that we are moving rapidly 
toward the climax of this age. We're moving toward the final fulfillment of, the, of this age. And we're going to enter into a time when God will establish a new economy, a new administration, a new government, and it's going to be the government of Jesus Christ himself. He said he is coming again. And when he comes again, as one cartoon I saw in a little uh, Jesus paper said, he ain't coming back as a carpenter. <laughs> He's coming in a different role altogether. He's going to come as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the Bible says, by the word of his mouth, he will put down every enemy, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I tell you, I look forward to that day. For those who love him, it is going to be a glorious, marvelous time. And the ultimate intention is to bring us into perfect conformity to his will, which is filled with kind intentions, and to make us look exactly like Jesus, and all of the Jesus people are going to be Jesus people. They're going to look just like him. I think we'll be individuals. I don't think we're going to lose our individuality. But we're going to look like Christ. We're going to be conformed to his image. What a good time that's going to be. And I, I look forward to that, that economy that's yet to come, that administration, which, which is going to be the, uh, the fullness of time, he says. He, he has purposed in his kind intention and according to his will that an administration suitable to the fullness of the times will come in, suitable to the culmination of everything, when finally every enemy will be put down. And I'll tell you, it's going to be a grand and glorious time. Children will be able to play over a cobra's den and not be afraid. A lion will lie down with a lamb. One of the most beautiful pictures that uh, is being circulated on Christmas cards now is a picture of a lion and a lamb lying down together. Have you seen that? I think it's beautiful. And there's going to be a day when the lion will lie down with the lamb, when nature itself is going to be transformed, when the people of God are going to rule with their king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall reign with him. That's an economy that's yet to come. And that's what Paul has in mind. And until that time comes, we live now under the lordship of our king. And the great goal of the believer's life is to bring his, his whole life into conformity with the will of God to be in total submission to the Lordship of Jesus. And I tell you, that's what I long for in my life. I want to be in total submission to the Lordship of my Lord. And that's where real contentment is. When you can say, Lord, I take everything as from your good hand. I accept everything as being from, from your will. And I believe your will to be good. Let me tell you, that brings a peace that, that, that uh, you can't get in the world. It's just not there. 
to be able to accept the Lordship of Jesus in your life in an ultimate sense. You know, I think this is the great concern of my heart. I was speaking this morning out of the book of Luke, and Jesus had some pretty strong things to say about discipleship and following him. And he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, those are hard words. And we love to talk about forgiveness and grace and love and joy and peace. And let me tell you, we all need that. But uh, there's a whole dimension of the Christian life that we escape if we do not see what it means to make Jesus Lord of our life. That is, a, is the most demanding thing in life, to submit totally to the will of God and to accept Jesus as my Lord so that he doesn't have to yell at me. He just whispers. And he doesn't have to club me. He just says, Lord, Gordon, I want you to do this. And I say, yes, Lord, whatever you say. And when the believer gets to the point that he has so submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus that the things that make Jesus happy make me happy and the things that make him suffer make me suffer. Let me tell you, that's a, that is a marvelous place to be. And I think that's where ultimate fulfillment is for the believer. And it's not as though God is trying to hurt us or harm us or take away our joy when he says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. What he's trying to do is provide for us real fulfillment. He says, he that tries to save his life will lose it. But he that loses his life for my sake, he will really find it. That's where real living is. Is coming to the end of myself and surrendering it all to him and, t and saying, Lord, I won't try to save my life anymore and save myself. I'm not going to look out for what I want, but I want what you want. Then he says, that's where you really find life. See, that's really not contradictory with grace, although some people think it is. Well, one of these days... There's going to be an administration that will sum up all things in Christ. That's the goal. That's what God is working toward, to sum up all things in Christ so that he is head of all things. The things in heaven, in the heavens, and the things upon the earth. All of this will be summed up in Christ. See, that's the great goal. That's what we call the millennium. And there are a lot of false messiahs that are offering false millenniums. I saw a sign in Columbus, Ohio last weekend that said uh, advertising Millennium 75 and Maharaji, this young 16-year-old Indian guru who just recently married his secretary and flies around in a Learjet and lives high on the hog. Uh, this, this young fellow is offering... Uh, in fact, the sign said that he would usher in a thousand years of peace. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, some people call him God. It's really hard for me to feature God with a bleeding ulcer. 
But see, they, they speak of the millennium 75. They're going to usher in a thousand years of peace. And he is the second coming. He calls his coming the second coming. He equates himself with Christ. And there are many false messiahs. The world uh, is full of them. It seems like we've got a Messiah a month club now. And just about every month you hear of a new one. But uh, Jesus himself is going to come. And one day all things will be summed up in him. Things in the heavens and things upon the earth. And I look forward to that time when our Lord will reign. And his reign will cover the earth. And righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. What a good day it's going to be. Well, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have something in him. And what is it? It's an inheritance. And Peter tells us it will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for us. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, that's, that's what the Bible says. He's, we have been predestined according to his purpose. And he works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. God's great purpose and God's great will and for our life is to be to the praise of his glory. God is a God of glory, and we are to be the, we're to, we are to ultimately be so conformed to the image of Christ that we will be to the praise of his glory, not to the disgrace of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of, the, of truth, the gospel of your, of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. I just, I, uh, just two more verses here, but you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. God has sealed you. He, and, and you don't have to worry about that seal being broken. You remember when the seal was placed on the tomb where Jesus was buried? There was no way that seal could be broken because Rome had placed it there. Pilate had placed it there in the name of Rome. And the only thing that could break that seal was a higher power than Rome and he did that seal was broken a higher power than Rome but when God places a seal there is no higher power and God has sealed us praise the Lord and the Holy Spirit is the seal he is called the Holy Spirit of promise indicating there's more yet to come Think of the best that you've ever experienced, and you know there's still more to come. That's good news. In fact, in the next verse, he says, He is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance. And the King James calls it the earnest of our inheritance. And those of you who've dealt with real estate, you know what earnest money is? Just a little bit you put down to seal the deal. It's just a small portion of the payment that's yet to be made. And the Holy Spirit is the earnest. He's God's pledge to us that there's a whole lot more yet to come. And you know, if you're a Christian, you, you, you've 
tasted just a little bit of the Lord. You think of your highest spiritual mountain peak, the greatest joy you've ever known on this earth, and that's just a little taste of what's yet to come. It's going to be great. And he has given to us as a pledge or the earnest of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. God's going to redeem us completely. The redemption process isn't finished yet. It's going to even include my body. My body is precious in his sight, and I'll be glad when I get my redeemed body. I don't know about you. I have a lot of aches and pains, and and, uh, this old body's wearing out. But I sure am looking forward to that new body I'm going to get. It's going to be a perfect body. And you know something? It's going to be perfectly conformed to my spirit. Right now, one of the biggest hindrances and downdrags I have to living the spiritual life is my body. It's just not conformed to my spirit. The Bible says the body is dead because of sin. It's not yet been redeemed. I have a new spirit. It's been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God lives inside my spirit, inside of my body. But my body's not redeemed yet. The Holy Spirit has been given to me as a down payment, as a pledge on better things to come. I've got an inheritance. God's promised it to me. And one of these days, that fulfillment of that promise will be that not only will I enter into all the joys that the Lord has for me as his child, but he's also going to give me a body that will be perfectly conformable to the Spirit. It'll be a body that's a real body, but I'll be able to walk through a wall. (laughs) Jesus did. Why can't I? I've always wanted to walk through a wall, ever since I was a little boy. And I've thought, wouldn't it be neat not to have to open the door? Just walk right on through. That's what Jesus did after he was raised from the dead. And I'm going to have the same kind of body he's got. And you are too. Now that's great, isn't it? We have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of better things to come. That's why we can live in hope. It's the promise of better things to come. Now, did his forgiveness, we started out talking about forgiveness tonight. The total complete forgiveness that is given to us freely, lavished upon us by his grace, according to the riches of his grace. And there is no limit to those riches, no limit to his forgiveness. Have you received that? If you haven't, you can receive it tonight by just receiving Jesus as your Savior. And when you receive him, you get the, you get the Holy Spirit He moves into your spirit to take up residence there, to live within you. And he gives you uh, a pledge or a seal. He seals you for eternity. And he's going to do some wonderful things in your life, but they'll only be just a tiny little foretaste of things that are yet to come. We've got a lot. We just need to see how much we have. 